wellness hospitality and hospitality wellness. Wellness within a corporate hospitality space, so hospitality wellness, it is. It can be very challenging for a lot of these hotels to in a profit because a lot of the payroll sits with spots. And so when you look at wellness within that space or being profitable, and the, the number one question is, where is the ROI on wellness? Welcome to Truth Behind Travel Podcast. My name is Dolores Semeraro, and this is my weekly show dedicated to hospitality and tourism professionals who want to restart the tourism and the travel industry with traveler-centric tools and insights and jump-starting their travel recovery journey starting today. Subscribe to the show to be the first to know when the next episode, full of tips, tools, and strategies on travel recovery, goes out. Welcome back to Truth Behind Travel. Today, we are talking wellness in the hospitality and tourism industry. How do we take care of people? How does a profitable wellness model look like? And how can a destination tap into the wellness potentials and diversify its positioning? My guest today is the former Global Director of Wellbeing for the luxury division of Accor, including brands like Raffles, Fairmont and Orient Express. Now she's the founder of Meraki Wellness Strategies, helping hospitality managers and owners to redefine wellness and reimagine wellness as the main driver of a profitable hospitality model. Help me welcome Lindsay Madden Nadeau. This is one of my most favorite topics when it comes to hospitality. And when we speak about wellness, well-being, taking care of people, taking care of our people, not just the end guest, but also the people working in the industry. And we know how much we need that right now because we are going to talk about how do we take care of people today in the industry. And I'm very glad to have you here because you come from an incredible background of wellness and spa as well within the industry, hospitality. And I'd like you to give a little bit of an overview of your professional journey and where did that journey bring you, you know, where you are right now? So I started my hospitality um, career, I guess we would say, not knowing that it was it was going to be in hospitality when I was uh, probably about 17 years old. And I worked uh, in Niagara-on-the-Lake in Canada. I'm originally, I'm Canadian. And I worked in a five diamond hotel and I worked there until I was probably about 21. And I, I was making enough money to put myself through school, but hospitality was something that captured me right away. I loved working with people. I loved the service industry. Um, and being 17 years old and working in a five diamond hotel with some of the top chefs, you know, and top people in the world going through a renovation of a hotel, which was worth 22 million, you know, this was huge. And it really set up the framework for luxury hospitality and my love for that. Now I went away originally and started off in registered massage therapy. So I thought I was quite young and ambitious. I wanted to be a sports therapist. So I wanted to work in the Olympics and I wanted to have my own business. I want to work with chiropractors. I really wanted to just change the world. So there was always this desire to want to help people or to work within the wellness industry. And I was in Canada and uh, during one of our cold winters, and I thought, you know what, I got to get out of here. I just, I can't be here. I need to get out a little bit. I need to see something different. I'd had a, a friend that I had met that was quite inspiring. And I thought, gosh, I really, I need to get out of here. And so I had applied to all the islands and I was first accepted at the Fairmont. 
and they were opening a property at the Fairmont, Southampton Princess, and it was going to be the second Willow Stream Spa, which was the new Fairmont Spa. And I did the interviews and uh, she said, can you be out here in 10 days? And I said, absolutely. So I picked up my life and that started my kind of nomadic journey. I was living in Bermuda for five and a half years, again, working for five-star luxury within a a world-class spa that was winning awards and, you know, just a a beautiful island to live on. Um, And that very much became a framework for a lot of my own personal values of how I wanted to be living my life. I then wanted a little bit more than that. And we had some new properties opening in Dubai. And my director at the time had said, why don't you go out to Dubai? I was on my way to Africa for a safari uh, for two months. And he said, why don't you stop in Dubai on your way back? And I thought, yeah, Kenneth, I'll just stop in Dubai on my way back. And of course, I went home and anxiously looked it up. And I, was, and I came back and I said, actually, I'm going to. And that led me to where I was in Dubai. Um, I arrived there in you know, just 2007, just before the crash. And actually, I couldn't stand it. I came from this beautiful, lush, beautiful island. And I was in this concrete jungle that really, you know, wasn't what it was today. It was after being in Dubai for almost 14 years, I can honestly say I watched the city grow to another phase. So um, we made it through the the crisis in 2007. And I was out there working with raffles and was able to just really advance my career. Um, And we had so many new openings happening in different regions around the world that, you know, I was the person that was was responsible for that. So I got to go out and help the hotels and represent the brands. My career and goals were exceeded by the time I was 24 because I, I wanted, I had left the FRHI, the Fairmont Raffles world, um, just because I wanted to experience some other brands. So I worked with Anantar, I worked with Jamira, and I really missed the luxury behind a Fairmont and a Raffles. And I just missed the culture of, of those brands. And so my goal was to come back as a regional director. And I came back as a global director. I was with them for another seven years. And, you know, that brings me to where I was today. I loved my experience within the corporate space. And I think I learned a lot, not only just about hospitality uh, and myself, um, you know, I was exposed to a really dynamic and interesting group of people where I was always learning. But when it came to corporate hospitality, I felt somewhat limited because you were always working within, you know, a structure behind a brand or brand guidelines or or something. And so for someone who was as creative as I was, it was quite challenging to want to, you know, I always wanted to do wellness at the very best we could do it. But there was just so many barriers within this framework that was created that I found it very challenging. So one of the reasons that I, I had started Meraki was with this real desire to want to create a very curated wellness experience that we could actually deliver. Because if you look at some of the brands that I had worked with, you know, we had 150 hotels. So how do you take that vision of wellness and plaster it across 150 brands and make it show up authentically and successfully? We just didn't have that, you know, in our, in our capabilities, it was very difficult to to manage that. So part of Meraki is to work where projects where wellness is really at the heart of the project Um, creating wellness programs, uh, understanding how partnerships and collaborations can help elevate wellness offers. And so this is is Meraki. So I left the the Middle East after 13 years. Uh, It was a decision I'd been working on pre-pandemic, just the pandemic happened to get in the way and and actually didn't delay anything. I still left the time I thought I was going to leave. You know, I've come back and now working with with, um, really inspiring visionary uh, owners and investors and developers who 
you know, we're helping them to define what wellness means to their brand. You moved out of Dubai back to Europe, but you've kind of like establishing a global portfolio of people you work with, that you collaborate with, with this common vision. And because you come from a corporate background and you've worked in corporate wellness for, for many, many years in hospitality, how is that vision different compared to the vision that you were propelling, that was propelling you like forward in your corporate career? What has changed in the way you perceive uh, wellness today? For me, I don't know if it's a perception or if it's, you know, the way that I get to work with people. Because if you take, for example, me working with one of the luxury brands before, you know, there was a group of people who were responsible for validating uh, a concept. Whereas now you're working directly with the owner, right? So there's not the egos, there's not the challenges, much less um, barriers in the way. And so what you can do is really create, take the owner's vision and really create an authentic version of that. And what's interesting and what I'm seeing is that with a lot of independent people who have, you know, they're coming back and they're saying, I've always wanted to do wellness. What I love about my job right now is that I can take an individual concept and idea And I can build that concept for them and design the space and make it operational and make it truly effective where, you know, when you were in a a corporate hospitality, we were struggling, you know, we had general managers, we had brand leaders, we had the people above the brand leaders, you know, we had the owners, we had the, you know, there were so many different levels of approvals that you would take a really fantastic wellness model. And by the time it made it to the hotel, we were maybe able to achieve 10 to 15% of how crazy, amazing that program was. And so the utilization rates went down. Whereas when we're working directly with the owners, we're building these programs and they go in with the strength that the program was was designed to have. So it's almost developing it from within rather than having a structure and trying to have to make it fit, which is what normally happens with itineraries, programs, or solutions, or anything that rotates around the hospitality industry. The hotel brand and the hotel framework is the shell. Anything else, the service around it needs to fit into the shell. And I was having this conversation on the previous episode on the podcast with uh, hospitality design, as many times design evolves and the service concept that rotates around the design functionality doesn't. So the service industry didn't evolve as much as the design industry in the hospitality segment. So when I look at the hospitality industry from a wellness perspective, I see beautiful spa, fantastic locations, incredible sceneries where technology becomes part of the spa experience. You you see, wellness means many things. And I, I was glad to have this conversation with you previously when you said it is a very personal concept, well, what wellness means to me, to you, to anybody. But within the industry, what does wellness mean today? I think what we're seeing and what we've seen, I would say for the last five or six years, typical um, hospitality models or typical wellness models are very much following a five-pillar approach to sleep, nutrition, um, spa, movement. It could be relaxation. Um, you know, 
there's the physical, mental, emotional, or spiritual, you know, there's, there's this existing framework that was defined by the industry probably almost even up to 10 years ago. And so what has happened over the last uh, decade, I guess we're seeing in hotels is that, you know, a lot of hotels were taking this five pillar approach and saying, okay, how do we adapt that to our brand? And so that, that was starting to define what wellness meant within a hospitality environment. And then it started to evolve. And I think there were some disruptors out there, but disruptors in a sense that I might even call myself a disruptor because I don't like to do things. I don't like to show up with the five pillar approach. I like to show up and really pull out from, from the visionary what it means, what wellness means to their brand. Um, and so I think we're starting to see a lot more very creative ideas. Like some people will say it's sound and movement or vibration, or, you know, they will bring in um, different elements of wellness, like uh, the microbiome. Instead of talking about nutrition, they talk about microbiome. They talk about lifestyle medicine. Um, so people are beginning to reframe it and divide it. And I wouldn't say move away from the five pillar, but use it as a foundation and then see what else kind of fits into that. So that's what we're seeing within corporate hospitality. Now, that would mainly be for some of the bigger brands, but you have brands like Four Seasons where they don't have a wellness strategy. There's not a wellness strategy where you go onto their page and they say, look, here's our strategy for Four Seasons. They actually make it quite independent for each hotel, which is nice because each, each uh, location gets to identify what that means to their property to their location to the people products and and you know that will bring its own success in many ways and then we've also got you know these what i refer to as wellness hospitality brands so those are your shiva sums your uh, shaw wellness um you know these properties your, your lancel Hoffs, where they're they're built and wellness is the driving factor of that Yes, there's a hospitality element to it because people are sleeping and they're eating and they're doing all of those traditional things. It's in a traditional hotel setting, but the driver of the business is very different. So in summary of that, you know, wellness shows up so differently. I think there's foundational um, ideas of these, these five pillars of wellness. But what we're seeing is that as, it, as wellness evolves and as it becomes broader, People are using that as an opportunity to define what wellness means to their brand, which means they get a much more curated offering um, that can really be implemented within any of their properties or programs. My question is, those wellness-led brands are targeting a specific type of clientele that is looking for wellness as their main purpose of holiday Sure. targeting those who are pro-wellness experiences. So this type of clientele, does it come from a place of profitability? Like I want to make money with these people or does it come from a place of, I want to help. I want to take care of people. I want to make sure they are better. I want to serve them into a, a better being. You know, you see the call is different. So I wonder what is the main driver for those approaching this type of business? What do you think? I would start off answering that question by saying it's really important to understand within the wellness world that everybody operates on a different level. So what I need from a wellness destination is very different than maybe potentially somebody visiting, let's say, a typical corporate hospitality brand you know, they're going and they're experiencing wellness, 
And that wellness to them might be life-changing. To me, it might be an extremely basic version of how wellness is presented. As an example, I go away to silent retreats, right? That's completely different level than somebody who's who's just going and staying at a luxury hotel and wants to experience wellness while they're there. And then another element of that is somebody who's actually going for a wellness program, right? And that can be done in a, in a very luxurious experience. It can be done in a very rustic experience that's authentic and culturally driven. You know, so there are different motives, I think, behind wellness. And that's when we talk about wellness being so specific to any brand, that's where, you know, it comes in and says, well, what you want from a wellness vacation, you might want to sit on the beach and drink a pina colada and have sunset yoga and, you know, have a sleep program while you're there and maybe experience some spa treatments. And that's what wellness means to you. So it's not necessarily saying that that wellness is right or wrong, but it's showing up differently in each of these businesses. Um, and I think, you know, where we're going with this is that if you have a hotel that is purpose-driven on wellness, I would say that, yes, I mean, at the end of the day, people don't start businesses to not make money. They make money because they need it to be profitable. But we find with a lot of these smaller boutique versions that are not done on such a grand scale, there's a, they're very purpose-led. You know, those people have started because they genuinely want to make a change in people's lives. They're good at what they do. They create the programs and they've set up a very successful business and therefore people will visit. An example of that might be Kamalaya in Thailand. Um, you know, John and Karina are iconic people within the wellness industry. Um, it's not like they just wanted to open up a wellness retreat and welcome people. They genuinely, you know, it, it, it is ingrained in their personal values. And, and slowly over, you know, 10 to 12 years, they have created this you know, visionary space where people come and have life transformational experiences. And as a prof, process of that, you know, they, they are now making money, but that was not a straightforward road, right? That was really, they were kind of some of the first to, to understand how do we make money in this model? And there were some ups and downs. Um, whereas someone maybe in a hospitality model that is going to experience, you know, I want to, you know, I want to, I'm bringing my kids with me as an example. I want to wake up every morning and watch the sunrise. I want to do some yoga and some meditation. Those are value added services. So it's something that people want to experience while they're at that hotel. Why does wellness not generate profit in, or it's not the most profitable uh, component of hospitality? And how can we reverse that? So when we look at, um, you know, it's really important to us as we work with our clients uh, that we help build a dialogue and a framework that makes sense to whoever is, you know, uh, building the space. And the way that we've recently tried to frame that is the idea of wellness hospitality and hospitality wellness. So we were writing an article recently for Meraki and the objective behind it was to say wellness within a corporate hospitality space, so hospitality wellness as we would frame it at Meraki, can be successful. But when you take a typical hospitality profit model, which is driven on rooms revenue, and wellness is kind of seen as, it could be part of the main positioning, but it's not the driving factor. People are not coming for wellness programs. They are coming for ho the hotel room and they're coming for the general experience. Wellness is something that they experience while they're there. When we take that as an example, it, is, it can be very challenging for a lot of these hotels to in a profit because a lot of the payroll sits with spa. So as an example, 
if you come to a hotel in the Maldives and every day you get your boot camp and you get your free yoga and you get your meditation and you know you get your free cooking lessons majority of the, that staff payroll is sitting under the spa now if you want wellness to succeed within that environment then you're going to need to take some some profitability off the room's revenue which in a typical hospitality model that's how you know profitability and success is driven is through the room model but if we take that off and even transfer it over to the spa then you know, they're showing a weakness there. If we don't, then we show weakness in the spa. Well, the spa is, is usually considered another operating department. So you've got a spa that's operating, offering free or complimentary services to guests with a payroll where that colleague is actually not generating any revenue because it's an added value service. And so when you look at wellness within that space, it's very difficult for wellness to be seen as doing well or being profitable. And the, the number one question is, where's the ROI on wellness, right? And it's very difficult when you have that, that typical framework set up to, to show that wellness has, has profitability. Now, there are different ways that we make recommendations um, to our clients of different ways that you might be able to, you know, transfer funds over or, you know, maybe put the yoga teacher in the room's revenue. At the end of the day, it's still peeling back their main drivers, which is why it, many times it can't be successful. If we look at it from, a, from another perspective where wellness hospitality, where wellness is a key driver and accommodation is there to support it, what we see with those models is that the programs, the diagnostics, you know, all of the alternative therapies, they are the driver of that profit model, not the room's revenue. You know, they're not competing or doing a, a comp set review of, of room revenue. What they're doing is they're seeing how much money do we, we sell in programs? How much money are we selling in additional revenue for diagnostics? And how much money are we selling in alternative therapies, right? So the profit models are totally different. So what we're trying to say here is that wellness can be successful within a corporate hospitality space if we're not using a typical hospitality profit model to support that. Otherwise, you know, there's going to be this disconnect and it's going to be seen as not making money. And that's why it gets such a bad rap. And that's why, you know, it can't necessarily always be successful. It might be successful in terms of the guest experience, but if we're, we're going behind closed doors outside of the guest experience and we're just looking at what's profitable for owners, then they think that it's not making money. Do you think that sites of the hospitality in this gate premises or businesses, whether it's a hotel, a resort, or a boutique, um, affects that profitability. So bigger hotels have less chances to create a profitable wellness business within their brand, or smaller hotels have higher chances instead to convert that. What do you think? Again, I think it comes back to profit model and what are the drivers of the business. If rooms is always the driver, it's going to be very difficult to make that profitable. Unless, of course, you have a spa that is fully booked all the time and, you know, um, and you're making profit from the spa, which, you know, spas can be very profitable. Spas can also not be profitable. You, you, know, you can have 12 treatment rooms with a 25% occupancy and we're wondering why we're not making money and why our rooms aren't full, but we only have five therapists to fill those 12 rooms. Well, your rooms are never going to be full then, right? So I think it, it comes down to... Um, profit model and making sure that you have the right profit model for your wellness business. I think if the spa is always fully booked, it means you don't have enough therapists. You have to, <laughs> you have, to have more. I mean, yes, and, it, and there is obviously a demand. There's a lot of times when, you know, when I was designing and, and building spas, I don't overbuild spas actually, because 
globally for the last, you know, maybe four years, when I was looking at our, our numbers, our treatment room occupancies were not over 25%, which meant 75% of the time our treatment rooms weren't full. Now on the weekends and in peak hours, they were probably full, but the majority of the time they weren't. So what I started doing is downscaling the amount of rooms that we had, but then also accounting for the fact that um, we, we would have outdoor spaces. So we might use the pool area or cabanas or something where seasonally when it wasn't too hot outside, we could actually start generating that revenue and then and peel it up. But we would never be sitting with, you know, 12 treatment rooms with only five therapists because typically that was what would happen is if the spa wasn't fully booked all the time, well, we don't need more therapists. So it would come down to that room ratio again. So, so my, my vision has always been to build smaller spas that are the right size for the hotel, but not overbuilt. And then making sure that we have some additional outside experiences where we can build on during peak times of the year, which isn't, you know, 365 days a year. And I guess that the outside experiences were also sort of reconsidered um, and, and brought back under the spotlight specifically as hotels started to work again and started to receive guests again when travel was starting to ease a little bit. I've seen a lot of hoteliers in coming up with very creative way of doing spa within their premises that wasn't necessarily involving a treatment room because... Right that perception of that human touch was affecting the, the appeal of the treatment per se. And have you seen this happening um, across, you know, the, the portfolio of, of operators you work with? Was there a general demand of creating outdoor experiences more as opposed to before? I think what happened with the, with the pandemic and because of all the, the hygiene and, and a lot of these, actually a lot of times if you look at the U.S. market, our U.S. spas, the minute they opened, they were fully booked. There was waiting lists. In Europe, we didn't so much have that. But what we noticed was that this, is, this was where the opportunity that wellness during the pandemic had to grow and be exposed. So you could do a lot more sessions like yoga, meditation, where these could be paid services that are offered to the guests and you know you're you could do them in outdoor se settings and it there was a zero contact so they were still really good for your well-being they just weren't you know if somebody wasn't touching my face or touching my back or I wasn't in a closed room so it really was an opportunity and I remember having this conversation in 2020 is this was an opportunity for some of our spas and wellness to really let wellness have a seat at the table you know and, and to take we always knew that spa would come back might not come, you know, full bore, um, or it might not come back, you know, to where it was before the pandemic, you know, for a couple of years, but it will come back. But in the meanwhile, it's given the services in you know, the meditations and the yogas and the, you know, the pranayamas and all of these non-touch experiences. You might even actually go into creative wellness, like painting or pottery or you know, wellness all of a sudden grew, it, it, it just keeps growing on its meaning. Um, and it doesn't necessarily always have to be about spa. I think when we look at hospitality for so many years before we started using the buzzword of wellness, spa and fitness equaled wellness. And there's still a lot of brands out there that still think spa and fitness equals wellness. And what I would say is actually it's, it doesn't, equal, it's a component. It's under the umbrella of wellness, but it doesn't define wellness. And it wasn't just an automatic switch that spa and fitness equals wellness. It was, what does wellness mean to this master brand? Or what does wellness mean to this concept? And how does spa and fitness support wellness? 
it's the it's the idea of having different activities and different experiences ultimately going towards the same goal. And this is something that perhaps when we look at the destination at large, do we have more opportunities there to position a destination from a wellness standpoint as opposed to, for example, like, okay, a pri- the private sector of, of, you know, brands of hotels and resorts. So if we look at the destination personally, I've lived, you lived on an island. I lived on islands for the last 15 years, Maldives, Mauritius. Um, How does a a destination tap into its wellness potential? That's a great question. And we are, uh, I'm actually the vice chair on the Global Wellness Institute's uh, Wellness Tourism Destination Initiative. And it was interesting because when we first started the initiative, we talked very much about wellness Uh, a wellness destination, which in the industry at that time meant a hotel wellness destination. It didn't actually mean a place of wellness, a destination. The way that we have framed it with the the GWI initiative is a country, a region, or community that focuses or has frameworks on social, economic, and environmental well-being. And so we set out on this mission within our group to evaluate countries or regions, communities around the world that were had exemplary examples of practicing social, economic, and environmental well-being. So that's either through policy, that could be through um, best practices. A lot of it was um, driven by environmental and social. Economic was something that was there to pull it all together. It was probably the, actually the main driver, right? But it was creating these frameworks for, for the places. So some of the times, as an example, when we did Costa Rica, they had their Pura Vita, which is, is all about well-being. That's positioning up the country. And they have built very strong policies and frameworks around environmental well-being. They've also built very strong frameworks around social well-being. And when we look at economical, it's something that they're building for the future. And so they're creating a lot of policy now that welcomes new investors in um, you know, affordable living but it's all supported by social and environmental policy. So that's really the basis of it. Whereas we look at a country like Denmark, you could easily say Denmark is one of the best practices in terms of all three of them. If you look at their policies and procedures, they've really built it on. Now, if we look at the Middle East, you've got countries like Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, who uh, within regionally within those countries are really building strong, sustainable um, practices uh, they might not be built on policy of the country, but they're definitely built on policy of companies, companies entering that, so from an economic perspective. So we're seeing a lot of times that countries really have great opportunities in order to um, welcome new tourism or to welcome uh, wellness into that destination. There's a lot of hard work that goes back into creating these policies and really holding people accountable for them. Um but we're seeing that a lot of a lot of this is very community driven, where it's ways of getting the community involved. Um, medical is a really big component that we're seeing that is really focused on wellness destination. So that doesn't necessarily mean a country like Thailand that focuses on medical tourism. That's not how we're we're talking about it. But we're talking about as an example of Costa Rica having really great medical for their community is genuinely really important to them. And so they're building the infrastructure in order to support that. A a company coming into Costa Rica who is starting their business from scratch or building something will have very strict 
guidelines for design and build and how they're building with the, the natural environment and how they're taking care of the, the environment. And they really hold people accountable for that. It's not just a propaganda washout of, yes, we are sustainable, which we're starting to see more and more businesses. We're seeing all businesses talk about sustainability now. And recently I, I saw an example of a company the other day and they said, you know, you went onto their webpage and the first thing you saw was sustainability, luxury, wellness. So I thought, wow, this, I bet you they've got some really great sustainability. What did it say? We're plastic free. We're plastic free. And I thought to myself, that's an element of sustainability. But I think what we're going to see in 2022 is this, and I, you know, I saw it last week on the SCIFS megatrends, is this climate accountability that you can't just show up anymore and say, I am a conscious brand. I am a sustainable brand. You need to come up and you actually need to show some tangible um, initiatives that you're doing that, that are really quite genuine you know, and, and impactful. I want to say that, you know, people are looking for a company to make an impact and not just by propaganda and a bunch of press releases that says, oh, you know, we want to be carbon neutral by this point. It's literally, what are you doing right now? And how are you making yourselves accountable for the people, the planet, and, you know, the future of this destination? So it's it's brewing right now and I can feel it and I can see it through so many different avenues, um, through different conferences and 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 white papers and data. And it's, you know, it's going to get to the point where companies are not going to be able to, they're not going to be recognized if they're not facing these, these values. If we look at it from a, a sphere of sustainability within the hospitality industry, you just mentioned that a destination might tap into um, the different components of what makes that destination special. So it's communities, it's culture, um, it's natural beauty, also, it's social frames and and the the service that comes that comes with it. There's a different perception around a destination being perceived as a wellness point of, from a wellness standpoint because it, it we talk about tourism. So what you mentioned instead is a wellness that comes from within the framework of the country that embraces the well-being of its people, of its economy by, by reflection, of course. So a lot of that well-being of the local communities, the local um, ecosystem, it's under the scrutiny of many of, travel, of the travelers today. And that's when the let's say the, 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 the primal concept of regenerative travel sits. So me going somewhere, X, Y, Z destination, for my own personal wellness, my own personal quest of well-being, but at the expenses of who? Of the local community, the, where is my money going? What am I contributing? What's my carbon footprint? So all these questions. Where does regenerative travel applies in hospitality? And then what are the trends that we're seeing? Well, what's really exciting, and I would say I've seen it come up more in the last year than anything, is um, there's a few hospitality brands out there, super exciting. And they have actually built their foundation on regenerative travel. So agriculture, um, wellness is a main driver of, of the positioning of the hotel brand, um, nature, environment, community, culture. And these are all components that 
you know, it's different than the typical corporate hospitality model. And what we're seeing is that um, they are building these values into the business or into the strategy or into the positioning at at a brand new baby brand, right? And so all of the components that are important to people today that have come up in the last two years are being built and framed in these new brands, which means that they're going to be incredibly successful because they're relevant, they're timely, and they're just, they're, they're moving, you know, they're being created at a time where climate change is crucial. They haven't been existing for a hundred years and are trying to build new frameworks into an existing um, a brand. And so what we're seeing is, is really exciting is they're challenging the luxury brands. And I think eventually luxury hospitality will always be there. And I'm not suggesting that regenerative brands are not going to be able to, to reach luxury hospitality. They will be able to, but they're doing it in a much more meaningful way. And they're doing it in a way where they're, they're at the forefront. They're holding themselves hundred percent accountable from the beginning. Um, they're building in diversity and inclusion into their people culture. You know, typically what we would see with brands, and it doesn't matter which business it was in, for years and years, everyone adopted the same corporate values. And they had these corporate values, and they were really great, and, you know, everyone followed them. And they were a group of values that fit across an entire platform. And I just finished saying to a, a client today, you know, there's one thing to build a set of values for your business. It's another thing to complement it with a people value. And what we're seeing now with, with companies like B Corp, which is coming out, which is growing at an exponential rate, and everybody wants to build a B Corp because it, it gives a validation of regenerative diversity, you know, social, um, social well-being, you know, all of those really important frameworks that have come up that people are now demanding are actually being built in these brands. And I think they're going to be incredibly successful and they're actually going to be the main driver for, for travel and tourism. And, you know, I spoke with a a wholesale travel agent um, back in December and he said, look, we run over a hundred tours per day and 80 of those at least are built on sustainable or regenerative travel. It is a huge demand that the market can't keep up with right now. And to know that there's, you know, a couple brands already that are out there that are doing regenerative really well, like Habitas, super accountable for what they do, very transparent with their operations. And then you've got a couple more that are coming out. This is the birth of a new wave of hospitality. It's it's not the lifestyle brands, which was popular, you know, about four or five years ago. It's literally, you know, this regenerative hospitality, which is really they're holding themselves accountable. People don't need to hold them accountable. They're showing up with accountability, which is, I think it's going to be a big changer, a game changer for the industry. For those that are listening to the podcast and are coming from hotels that have a wonderful spa and a beautiful wellness concept, how can these people play, you know, catch up with what's going on in the industry today? I think a lot of corporate hotels have have already moved that way. There's been a corporate... Um, CSR initiatives in place for years. Uh, I just think right now they're having to really amplify that and be credible with what it is that they're actually talking about. So there's brands, you know, um, I'd use Fairmont as an example, where sustainability was a passion for the brand. It was a, it was a real driving factor behind it. But it's definitely showing up differently 
than in like uh, as an example Habitas Hotel, which is is really they didn't have to build that into the framework afterwards. And and as, as a fair point, that's been existing in Fairmont for a long time. But they haven't had to come back afterwards and say, and now we are sustainable. They've they will always be sustainable, and they are sustainable from this day forward, and they will only continue to be more sustainable. And they are finding different ways to be profitable whilst being sustainable. They're finding, you know, there's so many conversations within the wellness, uh, not within the wellness world, within the hospitality world of, you know, plastic and amenities and dispensers. And it was this big thing. Well, can we still be a luxury brand if we use dispensers? It's like, if you're doing it in a way that is hygienic and clean and it's presented in a way, then absolutely yes. But there was such this fear to, can we take plastic bottles out of the rooms? Can we move away from plastic straws? Whereas these brands have literally thought about all of these things in the beginning. So they're not playing catch up. Whereas, you know, the existing brands that don't necessarily have that at the core of their business, they're going to have to catch up now and they're going to have to constantly make improvements and constantly shift their business. Whereas these exist, these new brands that have come out are, are making that impact from the beginning and it's more attractive to people. And when it comes to helping those organizations, so for example, from a Meraki standpoint, who works with you? Who, who seeks Meraki's help? I think when it comes down to it, I mean, we have a very diverse portfolio of, of clients because we have a very diverse um, network. We also have a diverse group of experience, um, not to mention my own personal interests outside of Meraki. And I think the type of person that will come to Meraki or that is coming and, and using Meraki right now is someone who's looking for something very curated. They're not just looking for any kind of wellness program to put in, slap on, and you know, call it wellness. They're looking for something that's meaningful, that's very purpose-driven. Um, and you know, they know with Meraki that they're not going to get something that everybody else has. You know, somebody asked me this last week and they said, So what's your final elevator pitch? Why is Meraki so much better than everybody else? And I said, you know, with Meraki, you're going to get something very unique and differentiated because each wellness project, we help define what wellness means to that project. From that owner and every owner I'm so inspired by every owner because they each have their own vision and and it, they're genuinely creating this it's very purpose-driven it's purpose-designed you know there's there's an impact that these people want to make in the world and I think that's you know that's another component is that at Meraki we really encourage our people to be following some of these best practices to associate themselves with these businesses so that they can they too can make an impact so as a consultant we you know, we inspire making an impact and therefore our clients can deliver an impact to their customers. So it's really about how do we continue to represent a voice in the industry and really challenge the normal um, and, and push people beyond their boundaries. Um, and I think this is going to be why clients choose us. And this is our, our unique selling proposition, if you may, um, to really continue to define wellness and to motivate meaningful change within businesses and to cultivate how we can cause positively uh, make an impact through people and the channels that inspire us to do the work that we do. I think there's more, more people that are going, that are being inspired to take that step, you know, to, to, to take that leap of faith, because obviously it is a leap of faith and trying to explore and consider new ways of doing 
of, of not repeating the old, you know, and 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 really reestablishing a new purpose purpose driven mindset that will bring whatever business you are in, whether you are in, in in the tour business, in the hotel business, in the in the wellness studio business, in the spa business. There's many application ultimately of the same purpose. That is exactly how do we challenge the status quo. Those that are listening to the podcast and have somehow, somewhere, a wellness, spa, well-being um, angle or corner or area of their own business to really rethink and think through how are you taking care of your guests today? What is it that you're doing that can be done differently? And how does that impact not just the guests per se, but what's around the ecosystem where the guest sits in the middle. So thank you for offering your wisdom, your insights today on the podcast. All the best for for the future of Meraki. And um, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today on True Behind Travel Podcast. Did you enjoy today's episode? I hope so. Every conversation is meant to bring you tips, values, strategies, help you get started with your travel recovery journey. So if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave me a review on Apple Podcast. If you are on Apple Podcast, of course, and if you are not, connect with me on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn and let me know what your thoughts are. I'll leave you all the links to connect with me on the show notes. So don't forget to subscribe and share the show on your social media channels.